Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Institute's Insight and Iran podcast. Uh, <laughs> my name is uh, uh, Otto Skorzeny, uh, <laughs> and I am joined here by Liz. Hi. <laughs> Just fucking kid, baby. It's true and on. Uh, oh, you, you, you fooled them. Uh-huh. You like that? So I told you the other day that <laughs> I'm becoming, in my hibernation, one of the top-ranked pranksters in the United States of America. Yeah, well, you know what we need to do? This, I think, I was thinking about this, I think we need to bring back Punked. Oh, yeah, that would be, I can't believe it's not. Dude, Quarantine Punked? Would be so good. Just Quarantine get some, Punked? Just, like, you have, like, five guys in full, uh, you know, full biohazard suits with, like, submachine guns burst into people's houses and be like... Uh, you're under arrest. Yeah, like hazmat <laughs> suits. Yes, that'd be great. Like disinfecting everything, or oh my god, fake EMTs. Ooh. Like, oh, you've got corona. You're dying. <laughs> We're gonna take you. And then fake they're just ventilator. like, and then they're just like, psych. You're punked. <laughs> yeah, you, but actually, you do have to go into 14 day isolation now because we did take you outside and put you in a working ambulance. <laughs> uh, but hey, you got nothing to do but anyways. Guess what? You punked. Oh, oh. Welcome to the True Anon Persian Power Hour, baby. Hello, how you doing? <laughs> Uh, is that, that's a weird sign on. Let me try that again. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I liked it. Welcome to the Persian Power Hour, where we are joined by Seamus. All right, guys, prayers up. Malika Fazali. Good enough for government work. No, say it, say it, say it, say it. Seamus Malika Fazali. Malika Fazali. Fuck, dude. So sorry. I, listeners, you don't understand. I've been trying to... Do, I, I've been literally practicing and wasn't able to do. But Seamus is a writer for the International Review and, uh, and of course, a go-to guy on events going on in, uh, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I got out of quarantine uh, a couple days ago after I got back from Lebanon and uh, just enjoying what Oregon has to offer. Oh, shit. Wait. You were in, like, mandatory quarantine? Uh, I was indeed. How was uh, that? Uh, it was horrible. <laughs> I was uh, I was stuck in uh, my childhood bedroom, which I'm currently in right now, uh, uh-huh. for the length of that time. Oh my so god! Like I, not not like not a foot step outside. Foot not a footstep outside. Thankfully, I have a bathroom in here. But other than that, nope. Could wow. not could not leave. Christ. So you wait. Yeah. You were in Lebanon up until two weeks ago. I was in Lebanon up until about two weeks ago until they, um, I'd been planning to stay, uh, at least for as long as I could until the funds ran out, but then, uh, I was kicked out of housing. So oh. I had no choice but to come back. Oh. Do you mind if I ask what you were doing over there? Uh, we can, well, if, if not, no, 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 it's fine. I was, I'm, I'm a, I'm a student at the American University of Beirut. Okay. Uh, so I was, I was just studying there. I was not. Uh, undertaking any covert operations on behalf of any country, Eastern mm-hmm. or Western. Well, you should consider it. <laughs> it's lucrative. Yeah, 
it, it is lucrative. I am I am kind of hurting for money right now, so you know. <laughs> no, if you're listening to, I know that our handlers that are listening to this do not call this man. Um, well, speaking of hurting for money, we wanted to have you on because we want to talk about Iran, who is also hurting for a little bit of money as they're facing down the horrible ramifications of the COVID pandemic. And it's just, you know, we are talking and it seems like it's really difficult to get kind of a clear view of what exactly is going on there generally, but even more so in, you know, in the wake of Corona. Uh, yeah, uh, Iran has been hit particularly hard by the coronavirus outbreak. Um, it's been obviously, uh, the response to it by the government has been hampered significantly, not just by the fact that Iran's economy is in shambles due to sanctions, but also because, um, there's so little government transparency within Iran itself that getting real answers to questions about what to do uh, can be difficult. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been tough to watch. Yeah, I know they were one of the first countries, basically, where the pandemic really started to spread, uh, them in Italy. Uh, like, it particularly hurt early on. And their early response to it was a little, well, I, I, sort of understandably haphazard, but it was, it was, I think, a pretty lopsided. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the issue, um, if, if we, uh, I, I'll expand on this uh, if need be, but... The issue was particularly hampered because in the early days of the outbreak on, I want to say, February 19th or February 20th, uh, the first two cases came up in Qam, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the holy center of Shia Islam, practically. And schools were closed in the, uh, in the surrounding province. Yep. But then, um, despite the fact that universities were being closed and there were massive concerns about the threat posed to it, particularly because Iran has so many war veterans who have, or are now immunocompromised because of chemical attacks um there was a parliamentary election coming up um Mm -hmm. uh, in the next week and um mps had brought up to the ministries that they wanted to delay the election or at least delay the election within calm itself but the ministries refused saying that they didn't want to delay uh, the formation of a new government so they proceeded as normal uh, and there were long in-person lines, people in large mm. enclosed spaces. <laughs> sounds familiar. I was about yeah, to say, yeah, it sounds well, familiar. <laughs> not so different, you and I. Yeah, um, it, it was, and it was, it just kind of uh, exploded from there. Um, a lot of, uh, I'll, obviously I'll expand on this later on, but there is a lot that can be, there is a lot of it, a lot of Iran's inability to respond to the coronavirus epidemic has been because of sanctions, because it physically yeah. can't get the material needed. But um, there are there were definitely steps that the Iranian government can could have taken mm-hmm. to have at least softened the blow that they did not take in the early days of this. Um, yeah. What could they? What What did they do that they or like? What could they have done that they didn't do? Or what was that choice? You think? Uh, the choice, uh, they could have, one, one thing that would have helped, uh, I think, immensely, if not to at least spread, to at least um, hamper the spread of the mm. pandemic, or to just restore trust in government that had been lost significantly since the protests mm-hmm. in the previous months and after the Ukrainian jetliner got shut down. If they had delayed the election, that would have helped significantly. Yeah. If they had pushed for um, increased checkpoints between cities and banning travel between cities, that's also something they could have done. Um, thing, things along the lines of not 
totally shutting down the economy, which Iran really can't afford to do because yeah. of all the economic yeah. sanctions on them, but to at least restrict it to a point where there are not so many disease vectors. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to just really quickly, you mentioned something about the protests and kind of the confidence in the government there. And that's something I kind of have questions about because, again, I keep saying, like, it feels like it's kind of difficult to really gauge, especially in America, what's really going on on the ground in Iran and what's, you know, propaganda or what's not and who you're really talking to about what's going on. But the government isn't very stable there, right? Uh, stable is... Um, yeah, that's kind of a know. loaded word. That's yeah. probably not the right word, but isn't very... I, I mean, you know... you. you it's been a I tough guess, year. Yeah, the tr- been, I guess trust year. is probably like a better way to or a better kind of lens to view it. Yeah, yeah I was the, curious the, the, to see yeah. like how much they like because it's a careful balance because you know there were pretty big protests that have been going on for the past year and then a couple years before then uh, or before that. Um, and so combining that with sort of this lockdown is is pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, okay. Pre- previously, just just for some context for listeners who might not be aware, uh, in November there were mass uh, protests in Iran. Uh, unlike uh, protests in the past, um, it would there was a mass uprising of work, particularly primarily working class people uh, in Iran, and there was not really a stage of peaceful protest. Um, the the economic situation had proceeded to such a point where yeah. uh, working class people were desperate, uh, banks were being burned down, uh, which has never happened, really, mm. in previous protests against the Republic. Um, and the police cracked down hard. Mm. Uh, the internet was shut down in order to make sure that nothing got out. And casualty counts are very, very wildly. Uh, the last count from, uh, I believe, Human Rights Watch put it at around uh, 200 to 300, but those counts stopped uh, midway through the protests, mm. uh, the reformists in Iran uh, said that it had been around uh, in the 600 to 700 range. Um, there was a report by Reuters Iran that said that 1,500 people had been killed. But the issue with those reports was that uh, the MEK had first said those numbers. Ah. And Reuters Iran has had numerous problems before. And this isn't something that I'm saying as... Uh, pro-government conspiracy theorists or something, New York Times reporters had brought up concerns about the Reuters numbers because mm. they're aware of the situation in the country and this wasn't reflective of the reality situation. But the death count, the death count is not really a big part of this. It, it was still it, very deadly. Yeah. And after that, um, that was one thing that immediately created massive amounts of mistrust in the government. And after that, uh, when... Qasem Soleimani was assassinated mm. uh, after the embassy siege. Um, Iranian government really had uh, their moment where there was this massive rally around the flag. Um, it, was, it was not seen, uh, the response to it at um, these mass funerals that sold out plane tickets and filled entire cities, mm-hmm. it was not seen as an exclusively pro-government thing. Qasem Soleimani is a, um, he, he is a, He's a figure of the nation in a yeah. way. Um, it it crosses all political boundaries, and um, it, it's a, it's a nationalistic thing, not a religious thing or a pro government thing. Mm-hmm. But then, when the response happened, uh, when they bombed Al Assad Air Base, um, after that had happened, they shot down accidentally a Ukrainian jetliner carrying right, many, right. many, many Iranian citizens on it. 
And then there was another wave of protests, but this time from the middle class uh, of Iran. And after that, uh, obviously, there was, an, and because the parliamentary elections were only a month away at that point, mm-hmm. uh, polls showed that we were heading, uh, not we, Iran was heading toward a historically low turnout. Um, yeah. Around, I think, uh, I think 40% of people in Tehran said that they were going to vote, um, or they, they were thinking of voting at all. And then a further wave of mistrust was created when uh, Iran decided to disqualify thousands upon thousands of reformist candidates, including 90 current MPs. Um, so you have all those. And then yeah. you come on the election, and then the coronavirus. And... Yeah, I think it's not been a great year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's important background for people to understand when kind of trying to figure out the government's response here and like how people are responding to the government's response, like in Iran. Yeah, there's not a huge level of people are fearful of the coronavirus, but additionally, there's not a whole lot of trust in what the government is going to be able to do. Yeah, the coronavirus, considering everything else that they have done hasn't exactly worked out up until this point. Exactly. Like, that's that's an incredibly difficult situation to be because, you mean, we can't really, like, understate the economic effects of the sanctions. I mean, they're, they're, they're like, predicting, I think, zero growth, or the IMF, rather, is predicting zero growth in their economy in 2020, uh, which actually, you know what, that's probably going to be average worldwide now. Yeah, um, yeah, for uh, France, it's something like a eight percent shrinking. Over, yeah, like, yeah actually, I, I think that these uh, predictions were actually made before coronavirus. Yeah. because <laughs> yeah, yeah, those yeah. would need to be revised. I mean, because because you know, lately they have like a pretty big supply of ga- uh, natural gas and oil, right? Yeah, the 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 thing that uh, in particular exacerbated the protests uh, back in November and and um, October was because. Iran said that they had, the government had announced that they had found this giant new natural gas field that was going to help with the economic uh, recovery. But then, mm. after they found the field, the government then announces that they're raising diesel taxes, which yeah. seems to be um, mm. com- completely wrong response to it. Uh, so, Iran has the natural resources to do so, but the issue then becomes, because of the sanctions, there's no way to export it to bring in more and more revenue and there's also no way to import things to a certain degree because when your central bank is sanctioned and nobody can deal with it how do you buy things in any meaningful way yeah i think that's kind of what people don't understand about like about how sanctions work like it's not so much just that the u.s isn't lending to iran right it's not like oh we're just we're not just giving you a check it's like basically blacklisting them from global trade in a lot of ways yeah the the i i, I had to uh, review pompeo's speech that he gave a couple days ago Ugh. uh it, it's it, it's bad uh, but yeah he he mentions he mentions the fact that uh pharmaceuticals and other medical supplies are not sanctioned for iran and this is the reason this is why he accuses Khamenei of lying about the fact that he can't import medicine mm-hmm. now this is true that pharmaceuticals are not officially sanctioned but you can't buy pharmaceuticals if your bank if the thing that you use to pay for the pharmaceuticals people can't deal with legally right that that's that's the key thing that people keep saying nobody's 
and this was a problem before um, the coronavirus pandemic happened. Uh, there was an interview on BBC Farsi where uh, a doctor was screaming at the interviewer for even suggesting the idea that sanctions weren't affecting medical supplies. They had been. And now the situation is becoming increasingly dire. Uh, the, uh, the IRGC is try- has been attempting to... Uh, delve into its own resources by trying to make up for the hospital capacity by building field hospitals and temporary hospitals in the thousands of beds. But the issue is, is that one, um, there's not enough beds that they can dig into to fully solve the problem. And two, um, they can't, the IRGC doesn't have an emergency supply of ventilators that they can Mm -hmm. uh, delve into or, um, pharmaceuticals that they can use to treat symptoms or any of these things. They can only delve into the, uh, the construction area, which the RGC has dealt with uh, before. Yeah, I saw that, uh, I believe it was Medicine Sans Frontiers, or Doctors Without Borders, and <laughs> offered to send, and I actually still don't know what this is. I'm not going to look it up. I'm just going to use my imagination. An inflatable hospital, uh, along with eight doctors, and and uh, the Iran government was criticized because they were like, no, don't come. Like, we don't we don't want you to come here. Leaving aside that uh, Doctors Without Borders is, if I was a member, an enemy of any NATO nation, I would probably not let them uh, into my country either. But they, they said that like we don't need the charity. We can buy stuff. We have the money. We just aren't able to purchase medicine. Right, right, like, we right. We have doctors. Yeah. And, like, and also beds aren't the problem at the moment. Yeah. The problem is everything else. Yeah, because Iran does have like a, a pretty robust healthcare system, right? Uh, Iran has about as robust a healthcare system as they can get yeah. under the current situation, but uh, they they have very very. I don't want to sing the praises of it as much as uh, as much as people want, but it, it's they have very very reputable doctors. There's a strong base yeah. um, to practice medicine. Uh, it's it's not uh, a, it's not anywhere near. It's it's bad because of the situation around it, but it's not yeah. as profit oriented as the American system might be. Yeah. Oh, is it like a health insurance? Do they do they have like health insurance, or is it like uh, universal yeah, health care? There's there's health insurance. There's no. It's not. A, it's not a single payer system. Gotcha. But it's not. They, it's not nearly as expensive as um any, anywhere near as expensive as the American system. Some of my Jewish brothers and sisters in Tehran uh, should run a uh, two failed campaigns to get them to get a single payer system. <laughs> 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 You mentioned Pompeo's speech, and I wanted to kind of, maybe we can go back to that for a second, because it seems like, you know, the Americans are really taking advantage of this situation, which is funny because I think, you know, maybe domestically, a lot of people have this sense that, you know, with the pandemic and the response to the pandemic, the U.S. government is kind of like with our economies kind of shutting down beyond, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going on with the Fed. Um and, uh, you know, everything kind of feels very, like, sh- very slow moving in the United States. But, like, you know, the Secretary of State's real busy. <laughs> and, the, the you know, the U.S. government and how it's acting overseas, it's, like, not even just business as usual. It really seems like they're using these this as a, you know, a little shock doctrine crisis moment to really take advantage to squeeze out some leverage here. 100%. 100%. Um, there was a, I believe, a report out from the New York Times uh, either a week ago or a week or two ago where, Pomp- where they revealed that Pompeo had pushed 
for a military strike on Iran during the current crisis. Yeah. To to make because they're on they're on the, the the you know they're on their back legs here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're ready to capitulate. We just have to give them that extra push. Uh, and it, and additionally, they're not they're not just doing it in Iran. They're also deciding yeah, that now South is America. the proper time. <laughs> now is the proper time. Yeah. Uh, to designate Nicolas Maduro as an international narco terrorist <laughs> uh, and put an FBI poster on, on him. It, as we send like as we send just like millions and millions of dollars to the Colombian military. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's it's a, it's it, the the. I, I I hate to use I think what is this like a Mean Girls line like Wendy people are dying. Yeah, like yeah. Pompeo. The, I, there are there are bigger. Like even if I was a supporter of the U.S. government's policies here, there are bigger priorities. I think at stake at home. But I also that would think like your attention. That's what's so clarifying. It's like oh, there aren't actually. Yeah. I mean, I know that like Pompeo. Pompe- sh- we should talk about him for a second. I don't know if our listeners are like know who he is. He's like. Uh, one of the worst, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm of the mind that like in any American, you know, regime, the secretary of state is, you know, in some ways, probably top of the most evil people list. Uh, Historically, that has been the case often. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, really, he's a bad dude. And I don't mean bad in a cool way. He's like a fucked up dude. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Mike, Mike Pompeo. I have I have increasingly um, I have to, because because of my job because I have to track Iran constantly. That requires me to read and watch all of Pompeo's speeches and his press releases and um, listening to his State Department spokesman. And there's a really distinct change between this and previous administrations. Mm-hmm. It's very, like, I, I don't know if I'm going to find the proper words to describe this. It feels like um, the State Department is occupied by, like, a middle school bully <laughs> who is, like, lying to you, but his lies aren't even, like, good. Yeah. His lies are really bad most of the time, and they're easily disputed, but he keeps saying them, and when you, when you call him out on his lies, he gets really angry. Um, he, there was an interview, there's multiple interviews where this happens, where he's on Fox News, interviewed by Chris Wallace, and Chris asks him a very basic question, uh, I want to say about uh, foreign policy with Russia, and any other State Department representative would have an answer, like a pre-thought-about answer, doesn't really have to answer anything, but he, he, has, a, he has a preloaded. Pompeo immediately flips out. My man. And like, like, gets super angry at Chris, and and just threatens to walk out of the interview. Uh, and this and this happens when he's interviewing uh, journalists from BBC Farsi and um, or really anyone that questions him about anything that he does. And it it, it then bleeds over to his policies regarding uh, Cuba and Venezuela, mm-hmm. and of course yep. Iran, where he uh, he once said that uh, with Venezuela that. Maduro was on the tarmac of the plane, ready to leave the country. Oh, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, he was like, your, your general's <laughs> around you or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, there, but there's no evidence that this was <laughs> happening at all. Like, not even like uh, like a, a misleading satellite image to, to say this. Uh, he just kind of said it and moved on. I always joke about how, like, so much of the Trump admin feels like this, like, cartoonish, uh, like, far, almost farcical amalgamation of all of the word like 
worst things in American history. Like it's like all this like ragtag group of people that are all somehow like uh, like comical or like exaggerated caricatures of the positions that they hold. Yeah. And yeah, he's like yeah. that. It's like Bolton is like that. I mean, obviously Trump is, you know, President Mayor McCheese or whatever. But it's like, it's the same way with him. I mean, you're right. He is like, it's like Bluto or something. It's like a, yeah. it's like a 13 year old Bluto. He's a, he's a pig man. I'd love, I want to, it's, I want to suck the marrow from his bones. I want to grow strong off of him. God. Okay. Okay. There, but he hates um, Iran. No. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, the thing is, the thing is, is that, yeah. Oh God. I, I want to just take a brief tangent here because I think this this describes the cartoonish evil that you Go see pretty off, well. That, what you were saying. Uh, are you familiar at all with uh, Radio Farda or Voice of America Farsi, or at least Voice of America in general? I, we're very is familiar the, with like, Voice C- of America. Yeah, CIA yeah. radio, uh, CIA broadcast stuff. Uh, well, okay. It's not technically CIA. It's uh, an independent agency of the, uh, the right, global. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 But, but yeah, we're yeah, also yeah. technically not CIA, but. Yeah, there, there was uh, a the the uh, I've I've been I've been watching some form of of um, VOA Farsi and also mm-hmm. reading Radio Farda uh, for some years, and there's a very clear difference between the Obama administration and now. Uh, previously, during the Obama administration, the stories that they would put out and the programming they would put out, there were small instances of um of Pro Shaw type type uh, type stuff, yeah. but they, they 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 varied by by personality. Yeah, like so, like if there was a particular show and that host was Pro Shaw, then maybe they would say something about it. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a network wide phenomenon. But now since the Trump administration has come in and new leadership has come in, it's become impossible to watch um, on on several different levels. Uh, there they previously had. Um, they previously would interview Persian, actual Iranian people who spoke Persian for their pieces because it's a network name that the Iranian audiences. But now they own, they basically only interview people who don't speak Farsi, but they're from like the Heritage Foundation or AEI. <laughs> yes. uh, and and, it's, and um, their reporters, there was an intercept piece that documented this, um, where the reporters are talking about, like, they're, they're in the replies to Trump Telling him to punish Iran? Yeah. Yeah. And the reporters are on it. There's there's no... Then VOA reporters are required to be aggressively impartial, but that has gone out the window now. Um, they're now broadcasting speeches from the crown prince of Iran, Reza Pahlavi, in full on their YouTube channel. Friend of the pod. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's become a complete... Um, uh, Pahlavi M.E.K. type operation, where if you're if, if you can you can you can state these allegiances out loud, even even if you're supposed to be an impartial reporter, it go it bleeds into the reporting. Where now the headlines are um, like really really hilarious to read at points mm-hmm. because they're in all caps sometimes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it's like it's like the Epoch Times, but for the M.E.K. Yeah, the the Epic Times. Oh god, the Epic Times. That's actually a very good comparison because the the um I don't I don't know if um any of our listeners have read the the Epoch Times, but it's bare. It's dressed up at least design wise as a real newspaper, but it, it, the language that they use is 
insane. Sounds very it's, similar. It, it, it's it's very it's comical and it's that kind of similar language is found in now VOA and Radio Fab though to a certain uh, yeah, extent. So this is like a real market trend like change from the Obama years is what you're saying. Not even in just like the propaganda efforts, but like Pompeo obviously and they're just like the U.S. state's orientation towards Iran. Significantly. Previously, um, obviously, the U.S. had sanctions on Iran, crippling sanctions on Iran before this through the Obama administration. That's what got Iran to the table for the Iran deal. But the rhetoric on display Mm. has never been as vitriolic toward Iran and as dismissive and as um, such bold faced lying by the State Department before. It obviously still happened. The State Department has lied about Iran before, but not in such a comical way, I guess is the way of saying it. They're funnier about it. It's just like it's the Trump administration sort of in miniature then, because it's just like, it's the same kind of as it was before, but like slightly, well, actually much just more insane sounding. Yeah, yeah. Um, All the the masks are off, as it were. Yeah, Yeah, totally. If you look at charts uh, of their sort of economic growth, after the sanctions were reinstated, it goes from... Uh, you know, in 16, 17, it's going up. And then in 18, it just plummets and then plummets more after that because these sanctions are really squeezing the country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there was um, th- that that tumble had been continuing up until a couple months ago, really. It had been continuing on that path. And only a couple months ago did Iran finally manage to stabilize the economy and get it growing at a very, very incremental pace. Yeah. And now with the pandemic, that that line is line's going to go down uh, even more now. And so the U.S. We mentioned it briefly at the top of the show, but the U.S. just worked to block basically the was the IMF right emergency loans yes, that Iran yes, was yes. seeking. Yeah, the the Iran had uh, not applied for any sort of IMF assistance since I believe 1962. That was the Good end of the, uh, the Shah's mm-hmm. uh, governance. <laughs> Fiscally responsible. I like it. Uh, previously, during the Shah's administration, Iran did not need any IMF assistance. Mm-hmm. It was it was rich, uh, you know, coming out of their ears. Mm-hmm. But after that, I mean, Iran is in a different uh, foreign policy position. Yeah, um, right. They they would not be able to apply for any regular IMF assistance, even though they they really did need economic assistance during all this previous period. But now Iran is in a very 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 desperate position where they are willing to take anything and anything short of full capitulation. Um, they so they applied for a five billion dollar loan from the IMF, uh, emergency loan, just so that they could they could be able to function as a country for the for the at least the remainder yeah. of this pandemic because Rouhani had gone on TV a couple of days ago and said that this pandemic outbreak at least in Iran could last upwards of a year. Yep. Jeez. So again this this is a necessary amount of money for the government from from the government's perspective. Uh, this had gone the the request initially got in on March 12th after um, Ali Akbar Veliati who is a, a close associate of Ali Khamenei, had been infected with the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. hadn't commented on it for a week or so, but then there was a sign that this was coming because Venezuela had applied for a similar IMF emergency loan of about $5 billion as well, and the U.S. immediately vetoed it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, about a week ago, Pompeo went on and said that uh, the U.S. was going to block uh, the loan uh, stating that 
the the concern was was that one Iran could use the technology bought using the loan money for dual use and uh, with assuming with terrorism and the second just straight up sending like you use the money to send arms and uh, um, other things to organizations like Hezbollah or <laughs> the Syrian government. Or any yeah, of these didn't things. he, didn't Hell, he say I'll like, "Oh, they're that. just gonna pay off all the all the officials." He's like, "They're just gonna enrich themselves and pay everyone off, and it's not gonna go to any of the people." Yeah. The the okay. So the, the I, sh- I should state that embezzlement and people taking money for themselves is not an unknown alien thing to the running government. It's a it's a government. Yeah. Um, but the issue is is that there's a reason why Iran is applying for this IMF loan now. And not right, way right. earlier, there is there is really no option where Iran embezzles all the money and then continues on as normal. Yeah, the, the I money know. the money the money is necessary to prevent the country becoming just enveloped in this disease. It's it's a desperate mm-hmm. situation. I mean, I think it's over over four thousand dead at this point. Uh, and- yeah, just over four thousand dead at this point. But- Wait, I have a question. So how come, I mean, just, I don't know, because I'm sure our listeners have questions as well, but so what's the deal with Iran working with Russia and China? Can't they reach out to them about, you know, maybe some some assistance? They have gotten a lot of assistance from outside countries in the form of direct donations uh, mm. of medical masks and things of this nature. But, the but not issue, like cash. No, no. The issue is that all, basically all international trade happens with U.S. dollars, as it is the uh, reserve currency of the world. Right, right, right. And Iran, Iran, the petrodollar. Iran does not have uh, big reserves of that anymore. No, they, they, have, they have more foreign currency reserves than many countries around it. But again, they can't. Well, that's not it's not, it's not something that you typically use in foreign trade unless you've exhausted all their options. And even then, you still don't want to use it because uh, at least what we've seen with Lebanon uh, recently. Right, yeah, very good. Um, they, yeah, had, uh, they had dipped into basically all of their foreign exchange reserves and then they have no money. Literally, yeah. you have, they, don't, they can't hand out any more money to people who, who are supposed to have money. So it, it's not a good economic step even in a time of desperation you leave that as an absolute last resort so uh, there are some countries that have started doing local currency trading in order to avoid having to use u.s dollars uh, especially during the pandemic but it's not a widespread enough thing that iran can consider doing this um on a on a a widespread scale especially because the iranian currency is not pegged to anything yeah. The inflation rate varies wildly, and the price that they could pay for something could be cheaper the next day or more expensive the other day, and it's a real crapshoot. It's a gamble. Yeah, I think this is just something, again, I want to, because I, I think, uh, you know, like we, I said before, that people have a hard time understanding how the sanctions work, but also, you know, just international trade is so complicated in the way that, you know, different countries either lend to one another or trade with one another. Um, but I think it's just like really important to impress. I know that everyone talks about kind of in like almost abstract terms, just, you know, us hegemony or the, you know, the reach of the empire or however they want to say it, imperialism, whatever. But like, it's so easy because of the dominance of the U S dollar and the way that international trade works for them to literally just close countries down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This has been a continual problem. Um, not just for Iran, but for a lot of other countries where if you are 
if you if you come if you come into into um, I guess the crossfire of American foreign policy in any single way, you are at their mercy. Really, uh, this is not some this is not an endorsement of the Iranian government in this respect. But this applies to really any country of any mm-hmm. political system or ideology that comes into conflict with American foreign policy. Uh, this is something that countries have been trying to work out for you know ages now, but. The U.S. dollar is just so overwhelming that yeah. even if you want to use something like the renminbi in China, sure, there's still concerns because what if you no longer have access to the U.S. market? What it means if you're closed off from access to other countries that perhaps don't use the renminbi or some other currency or another? Uh, right, right. It's 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 a you can't. You can make a gamble like that maybe if you're China or Russia, where you have such a huge control of the economy. But if you're a small country like, or a regional, or even just a regional power like Iran, that's not something that you can do unilaterally and hope that other countries follow your lead. It's something that you have to just wait for. Which is why all of our astute listeners know it's time to invest in gold. Yes, we are a <laughs> gold bug podcast. I should have paused for our ad uh, from. <laughs> I can't even finish that. I had like this whole thing about my Mencius Goldbug. Uh, <laughs> That's your new character. Me- yeah, Mencius Goldbugs. I'm still working it out. He's also Jewish, so I'm getting, I'm really getting into it. Oh my gosh. Oh god, dude. We gotta like this. It's also it's a lot to kind of like think through, and it's really sad. I you know, and there's nothing to you know. It's it's kind of a waiting game to see what's gonna happen. Um, so I'm wondering if we can just maybe we can go to a lighter note. Sure. Which is let's talk about Mek. Yeah, you oh, mentioned God, earlier yeah. that there were yeah. some let's say uh, alternative narratives of events in uh, in Iran. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And you mentioned three letters that I'm sure will excite a certain subset of listeners. M mm. E K. The three little letters every girl likes to hear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Who's M E K? The Mujahideen e Khalk. Uh, the people's Mujahideen. Uh, are an officially Islamic uh, Marxist militant group, uh, <laughs> but uh, de facto prag- pragmatist uh, militant group <laughs> yes. that, that uh, operates out of a, milita- a closed military compound in rural Albania. Which I guess uh, you can is, just get one of those. Yeah, I okay. Uh, yeah, oh god. I, I, I implore. There are so, there are so many like little little intricacies that are just insane when you go into them about how this even comes to be. Look uh, up this <laughs> compound, guys. It is like this is a full-on like military base. God. I think John McCain helped him out with it. Mm. it, it yeah, it's, he was a big MEK guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is a. Oh God. Okay, so just, just to get this relevant part out of the way, so that we can talk about mm-hmm. all the weird stuff about the MEK. Uh, the <laughs> MEK has been trying to. What, what they do is they try to latch on to any story that they can with Iran to become the people that oftentimes Arab outlets will interview, but sometimes U.S. outlets will will come on to as well, where they have the real story 
inside what's going on in Iran. They have the real narrative. They know what's going on. And previously, they had, they had found great success with this in 2001, or 2002, somewhere in that range, where they were the first discoverers of Iran's nuclear production facilities. They mm-hmm. found the facilities. And they've kind of coasted on that, that lucky break. And they've been trying to do more of that ever since. There was, um, back when the Aramco attacks happened, and the United States was trying to push the idea that Iran had fired the attack directly from Iranian territory onto Saudi Arabia. Uh, <laughs> which, just brief side note, the U.S. said they were going to provide the damning evidence of this attack, uh, irrefutable evidence of this attack, at the United Nations. And that was uh, several months ago. It yeah, takes a just, long they time just to ghosted make. them. Yeah, it you just didn't it. happen. <laughs> it takes a long time to make the PowerPoint. <laughs> They have to pull Colin Powell out to get him up there. Yeah. Oh God. There, there was, but they had they had a press conference. The MBK had a press conference where they outlined apparently all of the uh, IRGC commanders involved, and they had satellite photos of all the bases. But then nobody <laughs> nobody really bit. Uh, yeah. But after that, so now what they're trying to do is um, they have they have apparently the real death count and the real coronavirus case count for Iran. Uh, this is where I should say is that the fact that the real the coronavirus case count, the official one in Iran right now, the fact that it's not accurate is not an uncontroversial position within Iran. Um, there have been continuous arguments between MPs in the Iranian parliament over the fact that Iran is undercounting the numbers, that the numbers aren't accurate, and that testing capabilities are they're they're not they're not doing too hot. Um, yeah, just problems. as just really quick side note. Um, the same thing is happening in every country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like you've got Chris Hayes of Blue Check Twitter fame tweeting about how New York City isn't counting correctly. And, you know, the U.S. government isn't accounting for actual numbers. So, like, I, you know, people hear that and they get, you know, they, they run to their fainting couches. But it's like, you know, every country is doing this. Pretty much yeah, yeah. every country but South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yes. Except South Korea and like Iceland. Real number. Yeah. This is not this is not an Iran this is not a solely Iranian problem, but it, it's a pro- I, I don't want to get yeah. to give the idea that Iran is saying that their numbers are perfectly accurate. There is no possible way that there are yeah, more, yeah, there are more yeah. cases. Um but the issue is that the MAK is claiming and I want to get the exact numbers here. Uh, they're claiming they last claimed uh, about two days ago that twenty three thousand people have died in Iran. <laughs> And 500,000 people are infected with the virus. That's the MEK's alternative testing method they've used. I'm sure, yeah, they're getting, they're getting these numbers from somewhere. Now, the, the, theoretically, the case count that they are, they are providing, it could be true. I don't know. There are a lot of asymptomatic people that aren't being tested. But the issue with the death count is that uh, that, that would be, uh, I want to say, the highest death count yes. of, of like almost any country. And oh yeah, no, by far. Yeah, Iran is not. Uh, it, it's a country that has the ability to shut off the internet, but the internet has not been shut off. Uh, we have access to uh, local news, and um, pe- people have recorded. Uh, there, there have been uh, mass burials and lots mm. of grave sites dug. But when you're talking numbers like twenty three thousand dead. Th- that is something that is impossible to hide from anyone. Yeah. This would be something that would have been talked about 
within and outside Iran as a clearly identifiable phenomenon. Uh, and, and we're simply not at those levels yet. We could reach those levels very, very, very soon. But at this time, that's not, that's not really something that's within the realm of possibility at this time. We're still facing 4,000 deaths, which is um, a lot. But 23,000 and 4,000, there's, there's a wide valley between them, and Iran hasn't really reached that time yet. Are they using it to pivot towards their usual uh, uh, sort of desire to just, they're like, America, the Iranian people are dying, we need to invade and do mass testing? Essentially. The the idea is that Khamenei, because he's been lying about other things and because he's been down, he downplayed the initial, the government downplayed the initial threat of the coronavirus in the early days when the election was happening, therefore... Khamenei is responsible for all these deaths, and because he's responsible for all these deaths, then regime change needs to happen, and everything mm. kind of pulls back to that point. I, I'm not so sure that would be the greatest tack to take, considering our president's um, sort it, it, of. Yeah. I don't think it's supposed. To, I don't think it's supposed to make sense, Brace. I don't. I yeah. don't think that's so, really their main goal. <laughs> I, much like our my podcast. Well, I would, shouldn't say my podcast. Our podcast. Uh, they are led by a very beautiful, mysterious woman. Correct. Let's just go with mysterious. Uh, I, yeah. I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to editorialize. Um, <laughs> there was a, a Mariam Rajavi. Uh, mm-hmm. Rajavi, sorry. Um, she is the. She has been the leader of the group since around 2003, when the the. Okay, I need to explain. I love this this part of this. Yeah, Masoud Rajavi. Rajavi is the official leader of the MEK. Um, he he um, he was originally he ran for uh, uh, office. He ran for president of Iran in 1980. He didn't win, and then after that, he decided to join with Saddam Hussein to fight uh, Iran. And then the famous highway of death. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was it was a whole thing. And after that, uh, about 2003, he disappeared. Mm-hmm. And uh, officially, he's still alive. He's just, he's just resting, but mm. he's definitely <laughs> he's definitely dead because. And I, I'm not saying this as like I, I I have like a wall on like a like a beautiful mind wall where I'm connecting all the dots uh, at one of their meetings. Um, the, I want to say, I can't remember his exact title, but the Saudi, I want to say the Saudi information minister came out on stage and talked about the late Masood Rajavi. Ah, classic and then, slip up. And then when the New York Times came to interview people at the compound, uh, one, of, one of their spokesmen fucked up and, and said <laughs> that we can't talk about it, like where he is. <laughs> like, oh, he's definitely dead. Masood, Masood well, is definitely dead. You mentioned 2003, and I think that's important because, yeah, they, they, they did go en masse over to uh, Iraq during the Iraq. Well, they were already on Iraq's side, but they, they fought for the Iraqi government very poorly. I mean, they were basically used like literally as cannon fodder. Yeah, during, about as, yeah during perfect the definition of that, that there is. Yeah, during Operation Mersad, which was the final big operation of the Iran Iraq War, um, the, the big selling point of that operation was because they wanted to have the government in exile of the MEK. They wanted them to be the people who came in to overthrow the Iranian government. And they, of mm-hmm. course, give Khosistan over to Iraq. But 
they managed to um, do, I, I don't know the proper military terminology, they did a pincer move into the center of the country, and then they were basically, they were both slaughtered in mass on the battlefield, as well as thousands of political prisoners from the MEK, as well as many other leftist organizations, were then executed in mass within Iranian prisons as yes. kind of punishment for it. Uh, so on the battlefield, they were massively defeated. The MEK, all basically all of the MEK's popular support base that had existed uh, in Iran before that was extinguished. But the MEK did not take the message, and they continued being on Iraq's side up through uh, the Iraqi government's fall. And then they occupied a former U.S. military base at Camp Liberty uh, for a and, while. And it was just like, as far as I understand... It was just like this camp where they basically did nothing, right? Like they Essentially, just kind of walked yeah. around because they had guns, uh, and it was weird. It seemed like the government didn't know quite what to do with them at first. Yeah, they not knowing what to do with them is a very good description of the situation because the U.S. military administration and the Iraqi government at the time did not want to kick them out because it would create issues. But then uh, I am foggy on the exact details of the attack because my internet is fa- as a failed right now. It won't load anything. But uh, there, there, there was essentially an Iranian-led attack on the camp within Iraq, and they were uh-huh. forced to um, go to, of all places, Albania. And using some sources of funding, uh, mm-hmm. when I say when I say some sources of funding, I, I don't. I don't necessarily imply they have foreign government funding. I don't know about their exact finances, but a big thing with the MEK is that they essentially steal money from their members' families. Uh, there are numerous, very, very heartbreaking reports where people will come, MEK members will come back to their parents, uh, say, I've left the cult. Um, uh, if you give me all of your life savings, I can start a new life, a new career. And then they take all the money and they go back to the MEK. It's like Scientology of the Middle East. It, it is really, it is, it is, it's maybe the most successful, one of the most successful cults, probably. It yeah, is, I was about to say, like, they do have quite a lot of money. Yeah, they have a lot of money. I have never, like, Am Shinrikyo, I mean, they, they produce, they were able to produce <laughs> Saren. Uh, yeah. But Am Shinrikyo, or even like um, the Waco, uh, the Branch Davidians, mm. They had like they had buildings and and complexes. Yeah. But uh, for their own anime. Yeah, they had their own anime. Uh, for, for the listeners at home, I want you to look up the the photos of this this military compound in Albania. They yeah, have, it's wild. It is it's really wild. Out. Uh, they have their own honor guard. Um, they have like archways and um, extensive security, and there's a museum inside. <laughs> yep. And um, they 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 have this giant auditorium and different meeting halls where they host people, uh, and they have a lot of pull too. Um, not necessarily with current politicians, but they're able to pay very very handsomely um, people like John Bolton. Um, uh, uh, yeah, John they, McCain. They've got lots of fans in the U.S. government. I mean, like Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein. Uh, yeah, Nancy Pelosi sent a message at their last uh, at their yeah, last meeting like very, supporting them. It's super weird, and I have a question about that because they're big guys, Giuliani. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Giuliani. Oh, Giuliani. I forgot. Sorry, about I didn't that. mean to interrupt, Liz. No, no, no. no, no, no Giuliani. Giuliani's a major part of this. Don't yeah, worry. he is a major guy in that. Uh, but no, I just like I have a question there because it's like. So, 
you know, obviously McCain, you know, I mean, he was, but it's like bomb, 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 Moran. I mean, he was part uh, of that, right? I remember, I remember that the joke. The barbershop quartet. But like, um, you know, he sees them as a vehicle for regime change, right? Yeah. But like, what is every, like, I mean, I, and I, is that, is that really the attitude with all these other guys in the, in the U.S., you think? The the U.S. relationship with um, the MEK is, is complicated primarily because it, it, it fits into the general U.S. attitude of wanting to support any sort of resistance movement to right. uh, governments regimes that they're not a fan of. Um, typically, this can this can I don't want to say work out because obviously didn't work out, but with the National Transitional Council in Libya. <laughs> there at least at least the facade at least the facade of the National Judicial Council was that it was an effective, capable government that was not mm. overwhelmingly Islamist and would not um, create problems in the future. Um, however, the MEK, if you maybe look at the Wikipedia page for two seconds, you would come away with the idea that this was a, a long-standing resistance group to the Iranian government that is ready to take control. Is ready to take control, but uh, that that it, it really kind of exposes the hollowness of the U.S. government's motives when you're supporting that kind of organization. It, it, it's just supposed to be a vehicle, right? Uh, anything, anything goes, type thing. They're not, yeah. Um, they're either because it, it, it's a very, very depressing fact to admit as a member of the Iranian diaspora um, who possibly can't go to Iran because of family links to leftist movements. But the two governments in exile for Iran, the two best prepared alternatives to Iran, are somehow worse than the current government, which is a very, very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But somehow, okay, so we've got the Shah. He could come back. Which would oh. just repeat the situation again. Uh, <laughs> we we could have we could have the MEK come in and make the world and make Iran into a U.S. supported North Korea. I suppose um, you could you could make you could, okay. It's like girl or, boss Juche. Singapore. Oh god! Oh, oh god! My <laughs> impression of me is girl boss. Oh god! Exactly. Yeah, Raja v. Girl Boss. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can get, I can get behind this. I can get behind this. Oh, uh, there was a and and if if we're to ignore the other groups, maybe we could go to the thousand different leftist parties that are in Germany or the UK mm-hmm. that are all fighting with each other and uh, don't like each other and are kind of consumed by the same leftist infighting that we see today in the United States about. Entirely, entirely nothing problems. Well, the, yeah. the, the, the National Council of Resistance to Iran, which I think is the MEK, that's, I think that's what it stands for, NCRI. The, yeah. It's like an MEK front organization. That's like a fake popular front, sort of. Um, yeah. They have these giant conferences. And I mean giant. They had one, I think, a, I think it was two years ago in France. And, and some reporters there noticed that, that most of the attendees seem to be young Europeans. Yes, uh, yes, I saw this. I saw this. And um, it turns out that like many of them were sleeping and not really like sure what they were doing there. And it turns out they might not have been uh, 
there for necessarily uh, political reasons. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When I was uh, when I was living in France briefly, uh, I went to one of their uh, their big rallies. Um, it was an outdoor thing for some event that is entirely nebulous to me now. But there was this big crowd in front, and in the middle there were people carrying the banner of uh, many of the um, leftist dissidents that were executed in 1988. But the people holding the banner were not Iranian like the rest of the crowd was. Uh, they were very clearly white mm-hmm. and Euro- European-looking, as you said. And I went over to ask them a question, and I had my, I had my notepad out. I asked them in French, you know, do you... Like, why are you at this rally? And then one of them responded to me that he doesn't speak French. And then I heard him uh, say to uh, one of the people next to him, he started speaking Russian to the person next to him. Mm-hmm. And it became immediately clear that I had, I had witnessed another one of these things where they, they bus in, essentially, um, tourists. They offer them quick money, and then they have them pad the, crowd, the crowds out. Yeah, and uh, and, and it's not, I'm not I'm not saying busing. I, I literally do mean there are videos of them busing people to and from these events. These are highly orchestrated. These are not natural, uh, spontaneous demonstrations by any means. Yeah, it's it's wild. I mean, it looked like there were like hundreds and hundreds of people, and I, I read interviews with some of them, and they were like, "Oh yeah, some guy on the street corner in Czech Republic is offering you know forty dollars a day." If you want to come to to these, and it, it, and that's that's what's so wild about the MEK is that it basically seems like they're paying their way to some sort of like, uh, you know, uh, contra legitimacy. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's working and out I, to I'm a certain extent. Contra in like the the proper noun sense. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and it's really wild. I mean, uh, Giuliani like goes and speaks at their conferences all the time. They are, I, I think, as far as America is concerned, they seem to be the opposition. That is like supported, which yeah. is really funny. Yeah, I studied. I studied the. Um, I, I did. I did a media study of all mentions of the NCRI and Mariam uh, Rajevi over a uh, a good like three month period. Uh, a lot of outlets. Uh, I mean, especially ones that are controlled by people like the brother of MBS or <laughs> um, some sort of Saudi government connection. They were obviously using. Um, terms like Iran's opposition or opposition mm-hmm. leader Mariam so-and-so. But there were also a lot of news outlets that did not have these connections, that did not have any obvious Saudi leanings, that also use this terminology because they see other news outlets using yeah. it, and they assume because they don't research that, oh, she's the opposition. Like, she's got this organization, let's just call it the opposition. It, 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 has, it hasn't spread to major like a prestige outlets like maybe the new york times the washington post but it's spread to enough that you could easily come across it in maybe your local paper or a news website that you read pretty regularly and you can derive from that that she's she's what she claims to be she's the leader of the opposition this is i mean i just i just you know very quick google search in the hill it's a national security opinion piece (gasps) Oh, I need to talk about the hill. I need to talk about the hill. But you continue. No, no, it's finish, just finish what saying, but I Israel yeah. must grow closer to tear the Iranian regime apart. And it says, forget about the Green Movement. The story hardly covered in the mainstream media is that the anti-regime resistance, the NCRI, and its largest unit, the, uh, the People's Mujahideen of Iran, more commonly known as the MEK, are way more influential than the Greens. And it's, it's, it's a puff piece by two uh, you know, Anglo-named journalists. Um, 
What are the names? Raymond Tanter and Ivan Sasha <laughs> Sheehan. Okay. Which, okay. By I, the I was, way, these yeah. could be, and I want to—we're running out of time a little bit, but I do want to get to this. These could very well be fake people. I have not looked them up, but that would okay. be totally in line with the MEK's sort of mo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. About about the hill. The hill is an incredible example of the kind of monetary reach that they have. Uh, there was, I believe it's, I want, I don't, I don't know if it's still ongoing, but the Hill had a mini series uh, back in August uh, called Iran: The Untold Story, mm-hmm. and the and the scope of the series was that they would interview people uh, and talk about all the misdeeds that Iran had done that the MKs accused them of, uh, ranging from terrorist attacks in Saudi Arabia to various other dealings. Um, and it was hosted by, uh, I want to say, I want to make sure I get his name right, uh, Buck Sexton. <laughs> I wait, um, I know who Buck Sexton is. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was, incre- I was incredible to realize that this man is like a respected radio host of He's some kind. He's got an iHeart radio world. show. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I want to, after Buck Sexton, he he ran uh, the rest of it, but I, um, there was another host that was on uh, for the latter half of it. Wait, I should was, mention he's a former CIA analyst. Oh, is he actually? <laughs> yes. Oh my god! Uh, and and the other and the other host for some of the other episodes was um, uh, Sagar Engity, who is okay, the host. I, oh yeah, I was going to say something about that with the hill, but you got there first. Yeah, it, Sagar. <laughs> he had he was the host on some of these uh, episodes. Wait of, a minute, of, but I thought this, this guy was a populist. Oh. <sighs> Are you telling me he was the co-host of that popular like Crossfire New Wave? He wrote that, that book everyone with on the on the left loves. I, dude, that I I, I'm convinced that that is the biggest fucking psyop to try to get me to Absolutely. believe that Crystal, <laughs> Crystal Ball is a real fuck. These people get the fuck out of here! I'm telling you, I saw ninety nine percent of these motherfucking populists. You fucking with the with the left wing so called populist fucking basically just liberals and these fucking right wing populists take off their masks the goddamn neocons. If you're doing yeah. if you're doing propaganda for the MEK, I'm sorry. What where they're not even popular. <laughs> That's there, the there's the literally MEK, no no way this will pay off for you, dude. The, the MEK is not popular in Iran because they've 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 uh, as far as I understand it. They have committed some terrorist attacks that people were, did not take too kindly to. Uh, yeah, they assassinated the uh, the president of Iran once. People uh, don't generally like that. They have the popularity of Salmonella in Iran right now. Yes. Like it's not it's not it's not a, a a revolutionary vanguard in waiting anymore. Like it was maybe in the in the early eighties. It, it's it, it's not a thing anymore. Yeah, and they're not. <sighs> and by the way, yeah, they they do they did have that sort of. If you if you look at their Wikipedia page for two seconds, you might think they are a left wing group. They are, believe me, I, they are, their politics are, let's say, amorphous. Yeah, they, uh, they used to be, they used to be, the thing that made them so popular was because he synthesized Marxism and Islamic thought. Much like I But have. then, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what made, but what, they immediately jettisoned that when it became too inconvenient. Uh, it, it, it's an, it's an, it's a nebulous ideology they have. It's complete, it changes with the wind. So... We, we, we're running out of time here, but I do want to mention there is somebody who may, many of you may have encountered online named Heshemet Alavi. Uh, and it came out, I can't remember who did the report. It might have been The Intercept. That this yeah, was Murtaza not, Hussein. This, yes. This, this was not just uh, one man, but this was possibly a group of people. 
Uh, and it's it's funny because he had his Twitter account deleted because I think that does go against uh, the terms of service or whatever. It's pure. I mean, if you go to it, if you want to see what the MEK's insane thinking is on any given subject, uh, go to that uh, to that Twitter page because it got reinstated. Can you, can you explain who that is? Hashim like Alavi is? is a semi-popular, purporting to be a uh, Iranian man. Uh, a, a pretty popular, I mean, he has quite a few, uh, I got to check here, but he has like tens of thousands of followers uh, and I believe is often retweeted by, uh, I don't know if Trump has done it, but definitely Trump adjacent people. The White uh, House has included his tweets in press releases of the hand reporters. Uh, perfect. And um, <laughs> to be clear, this is literally not a real person. Like there was but, an investigation done, and this is not a real person. But he is he is basically just tweet after tweet after tweet after thousands saying the most outlandish and outlandish and unbelievable shit about any given subject in Iran. Uh and and is basically taken at face value, even after it was proven that he's fake. But so Bana Alabed grew up, I guess. Yes, it is. It is. It is. Let me just say that there is no man named this. And uh, of course, his Twitter account was reinstated. Uh, I'm sure there was a little nudge from some quarters. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just the sort of like, if, if you go under any, we you know when Trump tweets in Farsi sometimes. Oh, God, don't don't even remind me of that. I'll man. tell you, that, <laughs> check out the replies to when Trump tweets in Farsi. If you ever want to see someone uh, begging a a a man, a brain dead man to nuclear bomb the country of their origin. Uh, check that out because it is fucking insane. Wait, so that Twitter account will just, it's just like MEK sock account. Basically. Yes. Mm. Uh, Seamus, I don't know if you want to chime in, but like it was, it was it, right. Like that was, yeah, that, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what uh, I understand. Heshman, Heshman Alovi, he, well, not, okay. I'm just for the purposes so that I don't like, I just, I can need to function. I'm just gonna call him. He, 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 they. he, they, okay, I'll, 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 I'll be, I'll, I'll use the proper term for Respect. it. They had produced many different conspiracy theories that go beyond the usual MEK fair. Um, there, there was, uh, there was one that I, I brought up with Brace earlier that kind of just illustrates this. There was a, a multi, a long multi-tweet thread that they did. Uh, accusing, uh, it was a bombshell essentially, accusing the New York Times and the central newspaper of the Iranian government, Iran of being in league with one another. Yes. And the crux of the theory, and I'm dead serious, this was the entire theory, is because when Iran, the newspaper registered its domain name um, because I believe it's a .com, they had to use the US phone number to sign up for it and to sound legit, they just use the, the New York Times, like, public inquiry phone number. Like, very, <laughs> very, very easy thing to do. Like, literally anyone can do that. But Heshmat Alavi, the account, implied that, not implied, stated explicitly that because of this, this clear connection, the New York Times and the Iran newspaper are working closely together, and they're both pro-regime outlets, and they can't be trusted. Well, that's the thing is is uh, is uh, is they go after, and I, I I'm not just talking about our our dear friend Alavi here, but the MEK in general. They go after anybody that they perceived, especially U.S. journalists, that they perceive as being uh, not even just sympathetic, but even neutral towards the uh, the government in Iran. 
Yes, uh, it, two fronts on that. One, um, there was an incident where I can't remember if an American or European journalist went to the compound in Albania trying to interview people. They didn't get let in, obviously, but mm-hmm. they did the normal journalistic thing of just sending emails to you know, representatives saying, you have 48 hours to comment on this because the report's going on then. Uh, do you want to comment about this? These millions of emails go out every single day. Yes. But the MEK chose to put out a press release accusing the journalists of blackmailing them by saying that they had to respond to an interview question on a deadline. <laughs> and they, they go, they really like out at it. Um, and then on the other front, the kind of bot army that they, that they, um, they have. It's and fantastic. It's, it's incredible. And also because there are photos of this bot army that were leaked out of the compound where there are these, these lines and lines and lines of old men in front of like old CRT monitors and they're all all day uh, using MEK sock puppet accounts to reply to people. An and army of posters. An army of posters. An army a weapon to surpass Metal Gear. <laughs> there was a there. If you if you this is very this is a thing that is more familiar to any Iranian journalists that are listening to this podcast episode. Uh, if you are an Iranian journalist of any kind, especially if you are a woman you are going to be inundated by hundreds upon hundreds of replies on even the most nebulous, inoffensive posts that you make, telling you that you are a regime agent, that um, you deserve to get sexually assaulted, Mm. that you deserve to be imprisoned for life under the new democratic Iranian government. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's really... And these things go out all the time, and they have... um, they write articles about them in official outlets, and uh, they they harass people constantly, and it's this whole thing. And it's directed, oftentimes, from that central military compound. Amazing. Uh, it, it's, it's incredible. It, I it's, love it. I love it just in the past few years, there's been photos leaked of, like, the troll farms in Saudi Arabia, where it's, like, 500 fail sons typing away on the computers. <laughs> the IDF ones, where they're in full uniform typing on the computer. It's just, like... Jesus Christ, guys, at least have like a sign on the door that says, don't take photos of all of us <laughs> fucking. <laughs> None of them are flattering. They just look They're all not, of them It's look hard depressing. to look good in front of a computer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, what, so to wrap up here, there are crippling sanctions on Iran uh, by the US government that basically make it impossible for them to not only have an economy, I mean, U.S. is trying to squeeze them to death. They are trying to overthrow the government there or at least prevent them from, from functioning like a normal country. But especially hitting them hard in the COVID crisis, is there anybody that's fighting back against this? Uh, in what sense? In America. Is there, in is America. There, is there someone people are listeners can support or write a letter to somebody? Or? Uh, ooh. I'm I know so, I'm Diane Feinstein, s- uh, a close personal friend of mine... <laughs> Uh, she actually put out a letter today, which I didn't read, so it probably it probably like has a clause saying that we need to nuke them in two years or whatever. But uh, she put out a letter today, actually, saying that sanctions need to be eased. But I, I feel like it's just probably play acting. Yeah, there was a. I'm, I'm sorry to say this to all the uh, the nice listeners at home to this great podcast, but because of the nature of sanctions. There really isn't a whole lot that you can do from the comfort of your own home other than post. Um, yeah. About, about I, I, would, I would recommend to people, at least, at the very least, research about what is happening. Be 
on be on the be in the know about what is happening in Iran, so that when the U.S. government or any other government, for that matter, lies about the situation, misleads about the situation, um, that you know what is actually happening and that you don't fall for it and that you don't participate in that kind of propaganda campaign from anybody. Um, If this was maybe a better situation, I would recommend, you know, uh, donating to uh, a medical organization or some other, but we don't really have that opportunity. That's unfortunately... Uh, not possible under the current sanctions regime uh, that we are that Iran is under. So, sorry. I th- no, I think that's a really good point, though, that you bring up because I do think you know it's easy to feel helpless, and in doing that, you kind of like absolve yourself of any responsibility. But actually, educating yourself to like st- like you say, stay vigilant and not like be aware of what's going on, and being able to read between the lines of the U.S. You know media propaganda industrial complex and just the u.s state in general is incredibly important like that and that's no that's no easy task by the way yeah yeah what I, uh, more specifically i would recommend um get your uh if you want stories from out from inside iran uh don't uh read uh voa <laughs> or radio Farda, just yeah. in case uh, but additionally, um, don't trust IRIB necessarily, the state media. There are lots of uh, semi-official or independent news agencies that do great journalism inside of Iran. Uh, the Iranian Labor News Agency, um, I'm not sure about its connections with the government, but its reporting is oftentimes um, quite insightful. Um, the ISNA uh, has accurate reporting a lot of the time. Um, or this, make sure to look through the Iranian local news scene and cross-check your sources. Uh, these are not necessarily independent organizations by any means. They have allegiances, but they provide a better window into the inner workings and debates within Iranian, Iranian society than a state media organization either in Iran or America can do. And that's really important to know that it's yeah. not necessarily just in it's it there are there is internal debate in Iran about this. And it's not it's not just a one party authoritarian state that controls everything. Yeah, yeah, I think that also is uh, I want to add too. I think people should actually look into how the 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 government works over there because it's very different than how it was pre- how it's presented uh sort of in US media. Um Yeah, yeah. Well cool. Anything you want to plug before uh we pull the plug? <laughs> oh. Like uh, that one? That's uh, that's a that's a radio mind right there. Uh, what I would, uh, what I would recommend to all the viewers at home, uh, who have enjoyed this podcast is, uh, I have a Twitter account, uh, at Seamus underscore Malik, uh, S-E-A-M-U-S underscore M-L-A-E-K. Uh, I, I tip, I, that's where I post most everything, but Wait. if you want to, s- yes. You spelled that wrong. Did I spell that wrong? <laughs> M-A-L-E-K. Oh my God, did I spe- S-E-A-M-U-S underscore M-A-L-E-K. Yes, dude, that makes me feel so less, so much less stupid that you did that. We're going to link to it anyway. Yeah, yeah. just let's link to it. Because <laughs> uh, also, uh, I, have a, I also have a website where I have all of my articles that I've listed um, uh, that I've done in the past. Uh, Seamus-Malikafsali.com. Obviously, it'll be linked, but just in case you want to follow uh, my voice here. Uh, S-E-A-M-U-S hyphen 
M-A-L-E-K-A-F-Z-A-L-I.com. It's a dot com. We'll link to that, too. Link to that. Like, do, do not try to enter in the address from what I just said. You're going to fail. <laughs> uh, but outside of that, you know, I've, I've got nothing. I think, I think that's about it. Perfect. We love it. All uh, right. Liz, you got any parting thoughts? No, this is great. I love talking about all this stuff. I think this is really helpful for people. All right. Well, uh, with that said, uh, since I know you speak French, au revoir. Au revoir, boys. So I think I'm going to become the leader of MBK. You are? I think she rides around. I got to say, this lady, she's always in and out of helicopters. That's badass. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do Color Revolution, but in the MBK. Within the MBK. Within so you're it. Go to Tirana, mm-hmm. Albania. I'm going to uh, Lady Sha- Lady Hugo Chavez that. Ooh, okay. Girl boss my way up. Regime change Iran. You Amazing. down? So this is, so we got, wait, we have to do two regime changes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because we've got to take over the faux revolutionary agent. Uh-huh. And we're going to punk the United States. Baby, we need some funding from some sort of source for that. I, wait, I got a guy. <laughs> Little guy I like to call Mohammed bin Salman. If you meet him, you will, I'm serious. He's super charming. It's like, he's not like he seems on TV. He's really fucking cool. He's just like super down to earth, and he will also uh, give us eight billion dollars. <laughs> we're gonna push him left. Yeah, we're pushing. We're pushing MBS left. <laughs> I swear it can happen because here's the thing: when the, I, if there's anything I've learned in the past week, when anybody gives you money, it's left wing. <laughs> Which means that's that called Overton regime change. Exactly. That means your boss is left wing. That means Mohammed bin Salman's left wing. That means bankers are left wing. And it's, it's total. this is the realignment. Yeah. It's money That's based. Like, I did see some like weirdo, uh, I think they would call themselves leftist, left liberal academic being like, I really like what the Fed is doing. And it's like, what a weird thing to say. One of the most cuck sentences ever uttered by him. It's not doing. even, it has no bearing on what, even what the policy at the Fed is. It's just like, you're just fucking, you love daddy Fed, don't you? Mm-hmm. We... Which, by the way, you're just saying the Treasury and the state, and true and on listeners know, you can't separate the actions of the Fed from the underlying systemic causes that they were addressing, which is crisis of capitalism. So you're uh, saying, like, thanks for bailing us out, baby. mm -hmm. Also, fuck the Fed, end the Fed, replace the Fed, whoa, with the (laughs) MEK. That was nice. So uh, it has been a capital P pleasure. (laughs) Um, not really sure why I said that. That's kind of uh, gross. Yeah, I didn't. I this is a capital A apology for having said. Sometimes I just talk, and it's not really like I know, I know, baby. Um, but uh, my name is fuck. I'm trying to think of a good one. Can you go? F- no, I gotta go first. That's how we do it. Uh, God damn it. My name. Oh, brace Shaw, brace Reza. Uh, I'm joined, of course, by. Liz, hi, bye. And uh, actually, Young Chomsky, how about you say your name? Uh, music and production by Young Chomsky.
Uh, and Liz, will you uh, will you sing us out, baby? We will. See you next time. Bye bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.